Hi, this is Jason, lead pastor at Casper Line Church. Thanks for stopping by our weekly teaching podcast again. We do appreciate your listenership. We know that there are plenty of places to go listen to content, and the fact that you stopped by Casper Lions Church to hear us, we are grateful. This is week seven of our study on the story of Ruth, talking about redemption. And uh, we will finish up next week and then begin a new series on the book of Psalms. If you'd like to know more about Casper Alliance Church, you can check us out at casperchurch.com. You can actually download our, download our own app at uh, your Google Play Store or the App Store. Just search for Casper Alliance Church. Look for the double C's, click download, and you'll be connected to us right there. Or you can check us out at facebook.com forward slash Casper Alliance Church. Have a great week. Turn with me to Ruth. We're going to do Ruth. We have two more weeks working through Ruth. We're going to finish the last act of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. And I'm going to explain a little bit of what I'm going to do this morning. So I'm going, to, um, I'm going to tell you the story, the first part of the story. And then I'm going to talk about that for just a second. And then you're going to have to track with my brain to where I'm going to go on something that's not related to Ruth, but where I, during my study, this kind of triggered some things. And so we're going to have two separate kind of points at the end that will help kind of like land us. And, uh, but we're going to talk about Ruth for just a second, and I'll, I'll break it down uh, t- for just a bit. But we have two completely separate kind of landing points. And it's just because there's some things that triggered in my mind that I feel like I have to say, and I'm going to say them. So Ruth chapter 4, this is the final act. Uh, and we will, um, again, we'll finish Ruth next week. And then we're going to go into a series uh, on the Psalms of Ascent. It's Psalm 120 through 134. And, and each week we're going to look at a different psalm. And if you're interested, it was kind of inspired by me. One of my favorite books of all time is uh, called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. It was really uh, good for me when I was younger. Uh, it's an old book, like 20, 30 years old. And it, it's, it's a fantastic book working through uh, discipleship in an instant society. Uh, and this is way before his time. It's way more instant now than it was before. But each psalm has a theme that uh, within the discipleship kind of arena. And so if you want one of those books, I bought like 10, 12 of them, and you can come get one for me next, starting next week, or in two weeks. We'll have them up here or out there somewhere. But it's, one of the, it's a book that was super informative for me, helped me at a, at a time, but that's kind of the launch pad. We're not going to talk about the book. I'm not going to teach from the book. But uh, we, we'll be looking at those psalms, which the book really dives deep into. And then this fall, I'm excited. We're going to do Revelation. So that'll be fun for everyone. I'm not doing Revelation because I think that something's happening. Um, it's going to happen in the fall of 2024, so we have some time yet. <laughs> I'm just, just I was wondering if anybody's paying attention even. You're like, wait, our guy just predicted something. I'm joking. It's a complete joke. All right, we're going to look at 12 verses this morning. And then, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go bonkers with a couple other thoughts. Uh, I will go bonkers. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, listen to the, so just to give you a, remember where we were coming, Ruth is on the threshing floor, there is the, the idea from Naomi, Naomi sent Ruth to the threshing floor where Boaz was, there was harvest time, Naomi presented, or Ruth presented herself to Boaz, they had the, the moment on the threshing floor, and then they came up with this plan, and Boaz ended with, with Ruth going home to Naomi with six piles of grain, and I'm going to deal with this business in the morning. And I'll deal with it. This is the next morning, dealing with the business. Okay, so Boaz, now catch this. I want you to, Boaz went to the town gate. 
and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So remember, Boaz said to Ruth, there's got to be this other thing. There's another person that has a closer relationship with you that would need to satisfy, who has rights to satisfy this first. So let me deal with him, and that's, this is what's going on. Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So Boaz, so they sat down together. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on your, her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was a custom in Israel for anyone, for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son and carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses! With an exclamation point. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar, and Judah. Lord, I pray that this morning as we talk about the scriptures and the story in Ruth, that you reveal what needs to be learned, that you show us what uh, is to be taught. Lord, I pray that your words are the only words heard this morning. In your son's name, Jesus, amen. So we're getting to the capstone of the story. This is the big, hey, we're married. The love story has finally, this is the moment at the end of the movie where, where the, the guy's chasing and runs onto the airplane and everybody's on the airplane and he says, I love you. We should have been married years ago. And they're like, yay. And that's the love story here. That's the exciting thing that we all get to experience. And the story that's been progressing and, and God's favor's been on on uh, Ruth this whole time, and, and, and finally the, the fruit of all of what God has been doing comes to fruition. There isn't a but to that. This is God's hand moving the story and accomplishing the very thing that he wanted to accomplish, which should be celebrated and be excited about. And next week we're going to talk about the descendants and get a little bit into the details of that but we've talked about it before we know that from from Ruth and Boaz 
comes Obed, and then from Obed comes Jesse, and from Jesse comes David. And from the line of David, which I even read during the, the, on Pentecost Sunday, David's line, the Messiah will come. What an exciting beginning. And even the people in the space right there were celebrating and excited. And, and they, they said, may you have descendants. May you prosper. May you be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our forefathers. This is a celebration. Now, we've talked about this a couple different times. Ruth is a Moabite. And if you're joining us in Sunday school, we are, at Adult Sunday School, we are absolutely uh, disparaging Moabites. We, every Sunday so far, we've talked about how bad a people they were and how God wanted them eradicated. And what's really a, a wonderful thing here is you see God's people go, this woman, Ruth, she is, she's a Moabite. She's, she's one of the evil ones. But may the Lord bless your union as you come together. May they prosper this family. And may, may you, you have many descendants. Little do they know what was going to happen. Now, I'm, I'm sure that some were like doing the math and saying, wait a second, you're connected here and you're connected here. But still, they've invited this Moabite into the family and praised the idea that she was going to have children that were going to produce a legacy and a line of that of Judah. Wonderful, wonderful capstone to the story. Now, a couple of little pieces here that are really that are fun. The idea of taking off your sandal, if you were to do that in modern day and say, hey, I have an agreement. Here you go, Beth. No, I don't. That's like, it's awful. It's so gross. That's so weird to me. Now, there's ancient customs that we just don't understand. But everybody in the room, or everybody on the gate, were like, this is amazing. They agree. Let's celebrate. And that's the attitude that's going on here. That's the party that's happening. Let's celebrate. Now remember at the very beginning of the story, at the very beginning when, when they arrived and, and the family was decimated and Naomi and Ruth were alone and Ruth is saying, I'll say it again, Ruth goes, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will follow you. This loyalty that she had and, and bringing, is, is, and everybody was astir, if you remember from the first chapter, from the first chapter of Ruth. Everybody was astir of this, these widows in the land in Bethlehem. These, these people, who are these ladies causing, causing a stir? They're going to come and try to survive amongst us? And now they're celebrated as, you did it! Great job! Way to persevere! And again, there is no but at all there. This is a time to be excited, a time to celebrate, a time to, to be so joyous of what God's hand is doing. And this is a, a thing I think that we, we need to attach ourselves to. It's easy for us to point out the failings and the struggles and the hurts and the wounds and the all and I preach to that too much. Let's celebrate the win. Let's celebrate a victory. This morning, you know, one of my hobbies is I love to watch Alliance churches before anybody gets here. I love to, I just love watching our sister churches across the United States, specifically on the East Coast, by the way, because those are the ones having church right now at that time, right? It's like 9.30 for them, and I'm at 7.30 before anybody gets here. And I don't watch more than like three or four minutes of, of a church. I just let it, I just kind of watch, and I click to the next one, click to the next one. And it's fun to see our pastors, and I feel like I'm getting to know some of our pastors. And what's interesting, and I, I'm giving you a kind of a weird side story here, but what's interesting is one of those churches that I watched like way back during... Uh, 
when we, uh, when that was like normal, now we just meet, we don't even care. But like when everybody was like, nobody was coming to the building, and like that first like four or five weeks of like, hey, COVID. And then I started watching this church in Cincinnati. This old church. Calvary Alliance Church in Cincinnati. And I started, I'm like, hey, I, we're going to form a relationship with these people because our students are going to that area. And so I called this pastor. It took me a long time to get a hold of him. And I don't know, he's probably checking in. Because I said, hey, I've watched you online. And he goes, like, nobody's hidden anymore. We can't hide the way we do church. And I was like, hey, but here's the deal. We have some students coming to the Creation Museum and the Ark Experience this summer. We'd love to connect with your church and, and be involved in something that you guys are doing right there in Cincinnati. He goes, that's awesome. And because we kind of have a familiarity and I had a familiarity with them, I was like, this is what we'd like to see or this is what I'd like to do. Do you guys have? And, we, and, and this idea of us celebrating what God is doing in our churches, are, they're just going to celebrate with us what God's doing with our student ministry that we're, we're taking a trip, and they're going to go, yeah, we'd love to help and support. This is, this, so this is one of my hobbies. I start watching all these churches and celebrating with them what they're doing. And so it formed a relationship with the church in Cincinnati. But here's what happened this morning that was really exciting. That was a side story. I'm sorry. This morning, there was a couple of churches that both celebrated people coming to know Christ in their church. That's exciting. One of the people, one of the staff stood up and was like, we had two people receive Christ last week at service. Yes! It was an exclamation point because the Spirit of God is happening, is moving in His people. And this is why I talked about Pentecost. When God's people are empowered by His Spirit, people come to know Him. You can't escape it. You preach the good news because you're empowered to preach the good news. And so there was this, like I had this like kind of celebratory, yeah, our Alliance people are doing the thing. But then I was jealous. Because I was like, I want somebody to come up and do that here. And it will happen. But let's celebrate. Just like they're celebrating with Ruth. And they're celebrating with Naomi. who was like, call me bitter. God's not with me. There's a transactional piece happening here. And it's really, it's, it's a, um, to get into kind of just a couple of nuts and bolts. The Redeemer who is not named, one of the only characters in the story who doesn't have a name. He's just the Redeemer closer to Ruth than Boaz is. And he's like, fine, I'll take the land. I'll buy it. Now, in his mind, if you're a landowner, you're a farmer, you're a wealth person, you're like, this is an opportunity to grow my business. Now, some scholars would say that Boaz was being a little coy by talking about the land before he talked about the woman to try to trick the guy to go. But as soon as the guy's like, I'll take the land, and as soon as Boaz like, but remember, if you take the land, it comes with this lady, Ruth, also. And as part of the redeeming process, the transactional process that we have to go through, it is your job, your job to give her a child so that this land could be passed on in the family. The landowner, the redeemer, closest by was like, nope, can't do it, not going to do it. Well, there's lots of reasons why. But the primary reason, I believe, is has everything to do with money. It wasn't because of Ruth. It has everything to do with, like, I don't want to divide up my inheritance to my kids. I already have a good thing going. I don't want to pass it to another person, making the pot a little weird. But again, the whole point is, God's working his path, working his 
this plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. Now that's the story, and we celebrate it. Now here's where we're going to deviate and go weird. And I'm going to go weird for a second. I said I had two. The short one is, this story of Ruth, from beginning to end, has a fun word associated with it. Say hased. 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 The entire story of Ruth is all about hased. Hased is, is God's loving kindness. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read one verse to you. And so uh, the word hased just means that God is faithful, God is loving, and, and his plan and purposes are accomplished because he wills it, he wants it. So Exodus chapter 34, this is kind of like where the Israelite people say, this is God, and he, he is hased. Exodus 34, verse 6. I'm going to pick up with verse 5, actually. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling Yahweh, the Lord, the God, Lord God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with, and this is Hased, unfailing love. Unfailing love and faithfulness. When you combine those things together, it's, it's that God's love is trustworthy. God cares so deeply and can be trusted and will never fail. His love will never fail. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children and the grandchildren and the entire families affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So even though my love is unfailing, there's still consequences for your actions. But the story of Ruth is all about unfailing love, starting with the new, the news, the Naomi and Ruth connection. We've lost all that we have. We've lost our security. We've lost our husbands. We've lost fathers. We've lost everything that we have. And they and Ruth binds herself to Naomi and said, "I will follow you to wherever you go. My love for you will never. I'm going to show this hased to you." I'm going to show unfailing love to you. And it takes them on a journey to back to Bethlehem. And as the story unfolds between Naomi, Ruth, to Boaz, Naomi says, praise God who blesses you. God's hased has blessed us and provided for us. God's Hased, His unfailing love has carried us through this hard season where we were the marginalized women of the community, where no one should help us. His unfailing love has provided, protected, and given us shelter and food and comfort and warmth. So it changed God's unfailing love. His Hased changed Naomi's heart from bitter to bold to faithful. God has said his unfailing love turned a Moabite woman from an a outsider to someone who's going to say, I will make your God my God to an insider, to part of the family, to one of their own. God's unfailing love has said. At the end, Boaz, here at the, as he closes up the story, he does everything 
the right time, the right way. God, Boaz is the, does the right thing at the right time continually. That is God's unfailing love impacting a man saying, do the right thing at the right time. His hased carries him through integrity and honor and appropriateness. And, and being a man who's known in the town, full of integrity and full of following Yahweh, the unfailing love of God. Hased. Say Hased. Hased. The God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, and will lavish his unfailing love on his people for a thousand generations. Hased. That's the story of Ruth. If you were to say, give me one word to describe Ruth. If somewhere you found yourself in a, in a Bible trivia time, and they're like, what's one word to describe Ruth? You say, hased, God's unfailing love. Because that's what happens in the story. Now, here's the last thing. When we picked up chapter 4, and this is where my brain started to go wild, and I'm going to allow me to preach a little bit. I've just been talking up to this point. I'm going to preach for a minute. In Ruth chapter 4, Boaz goes to the city gate. The city gate. The city gate was the place of business. The city gate was the place of, of, uh, of organization. The city gate was a place of protection. The city gate was Whereas where people came to gather to do business, the city gate was everything to the city. The city gate was the most critical thing to the entirety of the city. It's where all the action happened. The city gate was the city. When you started to work into the, into the innards of the city, it was just houses and buildings and things like that. But the city gate is where everything happened. It's where the action was. So when Boaz stepped up to the city gate, he knew that this is where it was going to take place. He sat down and he started to invite the process. But the city gate is critical. It's the centerpiece of all activity. Turn with me to the most ridiculous book in the Bible, Ezekiel. Someday I'm going to have all of our elders teach on Ezekiel and we're just going to watch and go, what are you doing? Ezekiel is a crazy book, by the way. There's lots of stuff going on in there that just don't make any sense. But it's fun. But Ezekiel chapter 48. We're going to talk about city gates for a second. I'm going to preach at you. Verse 30 of chapter 48 of Ezekiel. These will be the exits of the city. On the north wall, which is a one and a half miles long, there will be three gates, each one named after a tribe of Israel. The first will be named Reuben, the second Judah, the third Levi. On the east wall, also one and a half miles long, the gates will be named for Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south wall, also one and a half miles long, you have gates named for Simeon, for Ishkar, and Zebulun. And on the west wall, also one and a half miles long, the gates will be named for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. The distance around the entire city will be six miles, and from that day, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. The gates matter. The gates have purpose. The gates are everything. The city gates is where all the action happens, where all of it is going down. Now turn with me to the end of the book, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. The Scriptures regularly are talking about city gates. It was, it was just, it's the most important part of any sort of any sort of city. Verse uh, chapter 21, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. And let's get excited about the final gates. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth 
had disappeared and the city was also gone. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. Who are God's people? It's the church. The church. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And He said to me, Write this down. And what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And He also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And who all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children, my family. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worship, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Descending out of heaven from God, it shone with glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates, guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, East, north, and south, and west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found that they were 216 feet thick, according to human standards used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh, I don't even know this one, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. I don't know that one either. And the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were made of pearls. Each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. And I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anything who practice shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written on the Lamb's book of life. In the New Jerusalem, the gates matter. Gates are important. 
Gates are critical. Now let's preach. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to make this connection. This is the connection I made so you can know how my brain goes when I'm studying. This is the message this morning. And I'm going to, I think I have one thing I'm going to say to you. Matthew 16. Now remember the guy in Pentecost who preached to us? When the Spirit of God came on him, that's that guy's name. Peter. Peter started preaching. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he asked, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn it from any human being. Now, I say to you, our Peter, that means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. But most of your Bibles say what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the confession that Jesus is Messiah. The gates of hell, here's the message, the gates of hell have no business with the church. There's no action, no activity, nothing that the gates of hell can do to the church. When the, when the demons of hell come and stand and try to do their business, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church upon the confession of who Messiah is, that He's Jesus Christ the Lord. Do you see that? There is no activity, no action to where the gates of hell and the church can, can be together. It doesn't work. Our church, our building, our structure has these gates that the Scripture talks about. These gates that are made of a solid pearl. These gates for 12 gates were the tribes. These gates that have purpose and the business of the church happening at it. But the gates of hell will never, ever be able to enter. The activity that's happening there can't be here. And the moment, the moment the gates of hell begin to enter the activity of the church, the, that church crumbles. That's the message of the gates. There's a reason that upon this confession that Jesus looks at Peter and says, you will build the church and the gates of hell, the powers of hell, will never, ever conquer it. They will have no sort of power, authority, or business to be done in this place. Now here's what happens. People of the church, we just love what we love, right? So we gladly open these gates regularly and say, come on in. We invite your business into our place. And you all have a story of a church that went sideways or a person or a pastor who went sideways or something that happened in the church that was a directly an activity of the evil one. We're taught through Scripture that Satan is like a, prowl, a roaring lion ready to prowl and destroy, kill, consume, devour its people. Jesus promises there is no business that He has with us. That when you stand at your gate, my kingdom, you're standing with the power and authority and truth and life of the Hased, my unfailing love, my perfect forgiveness. Everything you don't deserve, I've given to you so that you can stand and you can do business at my gate. 
And when you see the evil gate over there, it has no place. That's why when Peter stands up at Pentecost, he says, repent! Turn from this evil way. Turn from the crooked, crooked generation. Turn! Satan has no place with Messiah. So when I read Ruth chapter 4, and I see business happening at the gates, that's where my brain went. The gates of hell will never prevail. Now that's a calling card and a thing that we need to champion and begin to get behind and be excited about and passionate about. And, and, and even, I dare I say, aggressive about that you have no business here. That we need to be comfortable rooting out evil. We need to be comfortable calling out wrong. We need to be okay saying that's not appropriate behavior in my place. This is the house of the Lord. This is the city that Jesus built. And we stand at the gate holding down the fort because we are called to, we are empowered to, and we are given the duty and the task to create action at our gate. And our gate is formed by the Spirit of God. And that's the life that the church needs to live in. And that's the, the place where we exist. When we go to the gate, when we come, we are doing business on behalf of the Lord. And there's too many times where I watch the church, I'm not saying us, where we just invite the, the activity of hell into our space. And say, well, you're welcome here. We can't do that. We need to turn and repent from this crooked generation. I don't think it's a coincidence or, or even um, this idea of gate. You can read through lots and lots of texts that talk about the activity at the gate. Jesus used his words perfectly to tell the people Satan has no place amongst that confession. You are the Messiah, Peter said. You are the Messiah. Upon that confession, I will build my church, my bride, and the power of evil has no place or business or activity there. That's the church. That's what we're called to be. That's where we're called to live. Thanks for letting me preach to you here. Let me pray. Father, your word is Interesting how it brings out things in each one of our minds. And I pray that as a church family, we continue to explore your word, learn from it. Lord, but I know you do not want us doing business with evil. And so, Lord, I pray over our church that you protect us, that you give us your eyes, that you give us your heart, that you give us your passion and commitment to integrity and confessing and repenting from sin and turning away from evil. Lord, I pray we have no evil that happens in this place. Continue to build your church so that we can do your business at your gates. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have a great Sunday afternoon. It was good to see you.